0: war on the ground is tragic we we all understand that but the economic war uh if you do aside from the human cost maybe including the human cost is bigger uh you know the starvation in sudan uh might not make the tv as much as atrocities in ukraine but it's going to happen and probably more lives will be lost that way
1: Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm
2: Constantine Kissinger.
1: And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with
2: fascinating people. Our brilliant returning guest today is an economist, lawyer, investment banker, author, commentator, speaker, he's all sorts of things. We get him on every time there's a looming economic disaster or an actual economic Mm. disaster. Jim Rickards, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Constantine. Thanks, Francis. Great to be with you. It's good to have you back. Uh, So last time we had you on the show was about two years ago, right as the first instance of lockdown hit here in the UK. Uh, And uh, we had you on with another good friend of ours, Pippa Malgram. And the things that we were talking about particularly was that both of you were predicting that there would be inflation coming as a result of everything that was happening in the world at that time. The actions that the governments uh, in many countries around the world were taking. And we're now starting to see... That uh, your predictions were entirely correct, so what do you make of the economic situation we find ourselves in now
0: well that's a that's a big question of course uh the inflation's here so we for i'll say two years from twenty twenty to uh and, and over the course of twenty twenty one there was a, a big debate in economics and among analysts uh, about inflation versus maybe disinflation uh, uh, you know, still have inflation but at a lower rate um and that that debate kind of went on through uh, all of uh, um, uh, most of 2021, but that's over. Inflation's here. There's no more debate about it. The, the new debate is, will it persist? Will it get worse? Which it might, or will it um, uh, be subdued in some way? Now I have actually been in the camp. Again, the, you can see the inflation coming. It's here. Uh, it's going to persist for a while. Uh, that's, you know, that's the big question. Will it be, will it kind of tail off quickly over the next few months or will it, kind of be the dominant theme for 2021, sorry, 2022, I definitely lean to the latter. However, going out, you know, maybe nine months to a year, I see that curve bending uh, and getting into a more disinflationary mode, not for good reasons. It has very, uh, well, it it does have to do with the Fed in the sense that um, they've painted themselves into a corner. There's no way to escape the room. They can subdue the inflation, but at the cost of a very severe recession, not a mild recession, a very severe recession. So the question is, that to me, the biggest question in economics is, will the Fed go down that path, do what they have to do, do the only thing they can do uh, to subdue inflation at the cost of a very severe recession and something like a stock market crash, or- Will they see that coming? They'll be the last to know. We'll we'll all see it (laughs) before they do, but uh, they'll they'll be the last to know. It's because they rely on flood flood models and they're kind of in their own economic forecasting bubble and they're very defective ways of thinking about the economy. And they're very much a creature of inertia. There are a whole lot of reasons why the Fed is not nimble. It's kind of quite the opposite. But they'll see it eventually, probably when it's too late. And will they block at that point and stop rate hikes and maybe even reduce rates that could save us from the recession, but that will just amplify the inflation. So mm-hmm. rather than say which one's going to happen, I, I prefer to lay out those two paths and then just watch it very carefully. But more to the point, we've seen this movie before. This is a replay, and I, I think it's on, um, you, know, du- you know, like you hit the remote control for double or triple speed. It's going to happen faster, but this is a replay of everything that happened from 2013 to 2019 and and into 2020 which was i'll just go through it quickly so 2013 may bernanke says we're going to taper asset purchases that's that's money printing quantitative easing whatever you want to call it the market you know tanks bonds go down everyone's like oh it's over uh then bernanke bought but finally in november 2013 they said okay the taper begins they were still printing money but at a slower rate and that matters That went on until late 2014, the taper was over. They stopped buying new assets. They said, okay, here come the interest rate hikes, except they didn't come for another year. It wasn't until December, 2015, that then Janet Yellen finally raised rates. And then another year for the second rate increase, so it was December, 2016. So it was really, really slow, took two and a half years, but they got to two rate hikes. But then here comes J-PAL and then like cloud boom, 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 25 basis point hikes every meeting. And all the Fed was trying to do was, was to get back to normal. They were trying to get interest rates to maybe two and a quarter, two and a half, get the balance sheet down to, you know, something like 2.5 trillion. They never specified it, but that would have been a reasonable level. So, okay, now, interest rates are kind of normal, two and a half. Balance sheet's down around two and a half trillion. We're back to normal. We finally got through the the global financial crisis of 2008. We, kind of, we undid all that stuff. Well, what happened um, from – October 1st, 2018 to December 24th, 2018, the stock market dropped 20 percent. That was the the, the December 24th, 2018, we call it the the Christmas Eve massacre. Stock market went down 3 percent in one day. Um, But the Fed uh, was tightening into the weakness, as they always do. And the last interest rate hike, it was uh, December 16th or 17th, they, within a day or two, but mid December 2018, they were still hiking and raising rates. And that was the last straw. And then the market just tanked. And then finally, Jay Powell got that message on uh, the first week of January 2019. He says, okay, we're that's it. We're going to be patient. Use the word patient. It's one of these code words you have to. Get the code book out and see what it means. But patient means we won't raise rates again without giving you advanced warnings so you can get out of your carry trades or whatever. Uh, And then he went further and said, Huh, looks like we got to cut rates. And they did. And then by early 2020, here comes the pandemic. And then they took rates all the way back to zero. And then they started QE, I don't know, six, seven, call what you want. They took the balance sheet to seven and a half trillion dollars after getting it down to three and a half trillion so look at that whole sequence from 2013 to to early 2020 including the pandemic what happened they they tapered the asset purchases they raised rates they sank the stock market then they said okay no more rate hikes then they cut rates and then they started qe and by by april 2020 where were we zero rates back down to zero, and the balance sheet was a seven and a half trillion after getting down to about uh, three three and a half trillion. So that was a big um, uh, circle. It ended up back where they started from, but the point being, they failed to normalize. They failed to get rates where they wanted. They failed to get the balance sheet where they wanted. They did sink the stock market. Okay, now two years forward, here we are again. What are we doing? They just raised rates at the at the March meeting. They're going to raise them again in May, I and mean, that's the easiest forecast I've ever made. Fifty basis points, May fourth, boom. You can you know you can count on it. And they're going to announce. Uh, by the way, I don't have a crystal ball. The Fed told us this. I mean, that's the thing about the Fed. They may be wrong, but they're transparently wrong. So they tell you what mistakes they're going to make in advance. So that's the Fed forecasting is actually. Fairly straightforward, because you just have to believe them. Uh, so uh, so they're going to raise rates again in May, probably 50 basis points. They're going to announce a reduction in the balance sheet, whether they actually started in May, they probably will, $100 billion a month reduction in asset purchases. So that's QT, quantitative tightening. In other words, they're running the same playbook they tried to run or they started to run in 2013, 2014. But here's my question. They failed the last time. Why do they think they're going to be any more successful this time? Why do they think they can get out of this? And the answer is, <coughs> pardon me, the answer is they cannot without a recession. Now, if you, and this is what Larry Summers has been saying. I think he's right. And, you know, everyone's jumping on board, Alan Blinder and all these other big brains from Princeton. But, uh, but the point being, uh, they can normalize rates in the balance sheet and they can stop inflation. But not without causing recession, and not without causing a stock market crash. So the big question for the next year is: Will the Fed do that? And they may. Paul Volcker did it. Um, or will they balk again? At which point you might rescue the market, but the inflation is just going to go wild. That's that's the debate. But 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 the thing is about framing it that way. You've got two paths, and we'll get, we'll get signals along the way. We won't we won't be the last to know. The Fed will, but we won't. You'll be able to see this coming. Okay. Uh,
2: and Jim, uh, just remember that most of our audience are not financial experts. So we, we've you've given us the sort of financial expert assessment of, you know, th- the Fed is going to have a choice between controlling inflation by likely causing a recession or allowing inflation to run rampant. Uh, How do some of the more recent things that we've seen play into this? Because uh, we don't have time to get into the war in Ukraine, the rights and wrongs of all of that. But in terms of the economic impact, obviously, Russia and Ukraine are two of the world's biggest producers of wheat. Uh, So you've got food inflation that may be coming as a result of that, but also for other reasons, oil and gas and everything that's happening there. How are those events going to be affecting ordinary people's lives, in your opinion?
0: well in in a big way, and it's going to get a lot worse um and here we're <clears throat> pardon me we're talking about global uh, supply chains and by the way, I just finished writing a new book. It won't be out until later this year. Uh, it's funny I wrote a book about the supply chain, but the publication is delayed by the supply chain they don't <laughs> it is they don't they don't have paper you know the paper comes from Finland. Uh, I talked to my agent. she said uh, I represent an author his book is done it's printed, but they can't ship it because they don't have cardboard for the boxes. And even if you do, there may not be drivers. Uh, There's a queue at the printers. They're doing triage on books. Uh, You know, no need to kind of belabor that. But the point point is my supply chain book is being held up by the supply chain. But anyway, that is uh, a big deal. And there, and I'll come back to the Ukraine connection because it's huge. But um, the supply chain was breaking down before the war in Ukraine. Uh, That was breaking down beginning in 2018 with Trump's trade wars. We don't have to debate the pros and cons of tariffs. And trade wars. Uh, there are two sides to that, but that, there's no question that that disrupted the supply chain when um, Trump put uh, tariffs on imported, uh, you know, solar modules and uh, consumer durables and refrigerators and and uh, air conditioners, and everything coming from well, it was coming from everyone, but it was clearly aimed at China. China retaliated by saying we're not going to buy any more U.S. soybeans. And they bought their soybeans from Brazil. And that sounds like, oh, okay, you change your purchase order from the US to Brazil. What's the big deal? It's a huge deal. They, they, they move them on ships. You know, you got to redirect all that ship traffic, change all those shipping lanes, break a lot of long term contracts. Um, the US has to scramble to say, well, we got to sell the soybeans to the Dutch because the, the Chinese aren't buying them anymore. And that's that, you know. So the, the, the point being the logistics, the trains, the, 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 the train lanes, the cargo lanes. Uh, the purchase or the currency, it all gets scrambled. So that was going on before the pandemic. Then, boom, here comes the pandemic, and you're the Chinese are, you know, they got the zero COVID policy. You might as well have a zero cold policy. You know, it's, no one can get a cold. We're going to shut down a city of 26 million people, which is Shanghai, because there's a kind of tame version of the flu going around. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm not in charge of China, so I can't change that. But I do know what they're doing, and they're doing exactly what I just said. Next to Shanghai is a place called Ningbo, which is the biggest port in China. Most of the containers showing up at the Port of Los Angeles are coming out of Ningbo. Well, that's all affected. And so, so the, the global supply chain is, is breaking down. It was already breaking down. Now it's a lot worse. Now, along comes the war in Ukraine. And you're absolutely right about the wheat. Russia and Ukraine – now, I know there, there are – Different, you know, different sides of the war. They're in a fight to the death. But taken economically, if you combine Russia and Ukraine, you're looking at 25% of all the wheat exports in the world. Now, obviously, that's a huge number. But but the point is, there are countries where they get 100% of their wheat from one of those two places. Lebanon gets 100% of its wheat from uh, Ukraine. Lebanon is the best case anyway and now there's there's no food There are countries in africa where people are going to be starving so that is a um that's going to be not just an economic dislocation and an inflationary vector it is that but you're looking at humanitarian tragedies on a colossal scale uh you're looking at starvation um in a lot of cases but let's not and that's bad enough let's not stop with wheat for example the u.s said um we're not allowing any advanced semiconductors, maybe no se- any, any semiconductors at all or high-tech equipment to be exported to uh, Russia. Certainly can't come from the U.S., but the, U- the United States went further. We said, we don't care who you are, if you're China, Taiwan, Japan, anyone else. If you're manufacturing advanced technology uh, equipment and tools and using semiconductors that involve U.S. technology or U.S. tools, because you're operating under a license from the United States, you can't export to Russia either. Now enforcement is another issue, but so far the Chinese have kind of towed that line. So, um, so we've cut off basically advanced equipment and semiconductors to Russia. Okay, that affects defense and uh, aeronautics and a lot of other industries. Well, Russia said, okay, two can play. Uh, how do you make semiconductors? Well, you know, they're, they're wafers and uh, they're different layers. You need the, the chemicals and the strategic metals to make those layers. But more to the point, you you etch the circuits. Uh, on the semiconductor with lasers. How do you power the lasers? Well, there's a certain kind of compressed neon gas that's used to power the lasers to etch the semiconductors. 70% of that processed gas comes from a single plant in Odessa in Ukraine. So now, it's like this isn't no semiconductors for Russia. This is no semiconductors for the world because the world can't get the neon gas they need to run the lasers to etch the semiconductors. Now, can you replace it yeah you can probably replace most things but it takes years uh, in some cases um to do that and 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 you say well would you why hasn't this shown up already well first of all it is I mean Tesla assembly lines are shut down uh try getting a new car in the United States you know good luck um you know cars are cars have 1400 semiconductors they're basically computers on wheels you know when I was a kid you Learn how to stick a screwdriver in a carburetor if the engine was flooded. They don't even have carburetors anymore. They got semiconductors. So these supply chains are breaking down. And you're like, why isn't it worse right now? The answer is they um, uh, manufacturers and intermediate uh, uh, participants in the global supply chain have what they call safety stock. It's it's a little extra inventory, maybe more than you want, but just in case there's a minor disruption. Well, this isn't a minor disruption. This is a major disruption. You can get you can get by for 30 days using up your safety stock, but then you got to go reorder. And that's when you find out that either the price has tripled or it's just not available at any price. Or even if you can put the order in, the shipping lanes and the transit lanes are broken down and you're not going to see it for next year, until next year. So that's... Um, and, and I, I could go on and on. Probably don't need to go into every example, but I can assure our uh, listeners and our viewers that it's a really long list. Uh, you know, aluminum, platinum, palladium. Uh, you know, everyone loves EVs, electric vehicles, you know, the Teslas or whatever. Um, okay, uh, Teslas run on, well, on batteries. Le- leave aside the fact that you have to charge the batteries with coal-fired plants. Uh, that's a That's a the issue for another day. I mean, 58% of China's energy comes from coal, not oil, not natural gas, not uranium, coal. Uh, and they're the leading producer of electronic vehicles. So they're basically uh, emitting huge amounts of CO2 to charge up your Tesla. It's not like the electricity comes out of uh, out of the air. Uh, but but that aside, uh, you can't build those cars without batteries. Well, what's in a battery? Nickel. Where's nickel come from? comes from Russia, you know, lithium ion. Um, uh, that you know, the where's the lithium come from? It comes from mines, many of which are in Russia. Um, how does Boeing make aircraft? Well, you need a lot of aluminum. Where's it come from? Russia. Titanium, Russia. I mean, the um, there's a group called the Five Eyes. You you may have heard of them, but Five Eyes are five kind of a- Anglo-Saxon community, if you want to think of it that way, who share intelligence. They share intelligence that they they would not share with anyone else, even allies. And the Five Eyes are UK, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, and the United States. And they share intelligence among themselves. Well, they've now kind of expanded their uh, mandate, if you will. And the Five Eyes recently came out with a report. I just call it the Five Eyes Report. It's got a longer official title. Uh, and they looked at what we're talking about. They looked at global supply chains from a, from a strategic dependence point of view. And what they did, they identified over 5,000 categories of of goods um intermediate goods source goods finished goods etc and they looked at all the countries in the world and they asked themselves two questions number one uh how much of your supply of that good do you import and then number two is more than 50 percent of that supply from a single source and if the answer to both questions was, well, the first question is, is what it is, but if that's a high number and more than half comes from a single source, you would consider strategically dependent on that source. It's just kind of a little algorithm. And they ran it, and the results were shocking. I've read the report. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, 100% of the aspirin in New Zealand comes from China. So uh, if you're in a trade war with China, don't, uh, you know, don't look for relief in a hangover because you're not going to get any aspirin. But on, on a, a serious note – um, the dependencies are huge. UK was actually a little better, a little less dependent than, than some of the others. But Canada, the U.S., um, you know, Boeing gets 35 percent of the aluminum that they use in aircraft manufacturing from Russia. Well, you cut that off. Good luck getting new planes, you know, et cetera. Um, pharmaceuticals, uh, strategic metals, uh, oil and natural gas, obviously wheat. Uh, oh, well, the biggest one, maybe fertilizer. Uh, like, oh, no wheat from Ukraine, that's a problem. Well, how about no wheat from the United States? Because you can't get the fertilizer. This is, we're, we're you know, it's spring in the Northern Hemisphere. This is planting season right now. Uh, people who are getting fertilizer are paying triple what they paid last year, and there are shortages. So, uh, you know, good luck with a bumper crop uh, next September because a lot of the planning is not going to happen. So this is, uh we're living in a world of very short, attention spans kind of insect level attention spans but the world goes on with leads and lags and a lot of the things i'm talking about they don't happen overnight they are happening but the impact might show up in three months or six months or a year etc but it's very easy to see the inflationary uh, potential of all this so you got two things going on at once shortages and supply chain disruption so you might not be able to get goods i don't know i've been to the uk lately i wish i had i love going there but it's hard to travel these days Um, at least in the United States, you go to the supermarkets uh, and the shelves are partly bare. Now, it's not like every shelf is bare, like, you know, East Germany in 1956, but there's like, you know, hey, there's no peanut butter this week. There's no chips or the soda is gone, et cetera. Um, And and then, you know, for example, I like a particular brand of salsa, hot salsa, and I'll go and there's none there. There's none on the shelf. I'll go again and there's none on the shelf. So the third visit, they got a case in. Okay. I'll buy half the case because I'm not, I'm not going to take it. I'm not usually buy two jars, but I might buy six jars or eight jars because I don't know when I'm going to see it again. Of course, I'm hoarding, right? And I'm contributing to the supply chain shortage because the next person is not going to get any. But that's my response function to the fact that I got shut out the last two times. Well, everyone's doing the same thing. That's just human nature. So it's just getting worse. But uh, shortages, yes. Some of these will be critical in terms of manufacturing, uh, and some of them will be uh, tragic in terms of starvation and higher prices across the board. Hey,
2: Francis, do you
1: like privacy? Of course I do. I don't want the Feds knowing my business in case I get whacked because I got too close to the truth. The man is everywhere, and truth seekers like me Need to be careful. Mate, you're a burnout former primary
2: school teacher who spends too much time on i Just because you read that the world is run by a cabal of lizards doesn't mean it's
1: actually true. I've never said the world is run by a cabal of lizards, but they are definitely tracking my online activity.
2: Well, if you are worried about your data being mined by big tech and sold off to third parties all around the globe, then Startmail is the email provider for you.
1: The email accounts you use aren't free. They're mining your accounts and email for data as we speak. This data can then be sold on to a whole host of different
2: companies. Startmail keeps your messages private. Every email can be encrypted even if the recipient doesn't use encryption. When you delete an email in Startmail, it's gone forever.
1: Startmail uses their own servers, not Amazon. This means they can't be put out of business like Parler. Switching to Startmail is dead easy. You can easily transfer all your current email data so you don't need to start from scratch.
2: Your cybersecurity has never been more at risk. Email snoops and scammers are taking advantage of the pandemic as phishing has skyrocketed in the last year. Take control of your privacy with Startmail before it's too late.
1: Sign up today and you'll get 50% off your first year. Go to startmail.com slash trigger. That's Startmail with a T. S-T-A-R-T.
2: Mail.com forward slash trigger. For 50% off your first year. Startmail.com slash trigger.
1: Don't let the lizards get you. Every time we talk to you, it seems uh, we criticize globalization. And we say globalization is done. It's had its day. This is another nail in the coffin for globalization. Isn't this the final nail in the coffin for globalization?
0: It's a, it's a great question, Francis. I would, it, it, I would put it slightly differently. Um, and this is the the thesis of my uh, my new book. I, I finished writing about it, but it won't be out for a <laughs> while. Uh, What's it called, um, Jim?
2: Tell everybody what it's called.
0: Uh, it's called "Sold Out." So you know, hey, go to the store, you're sold out. Sorry, but uh, <laughs> it's. Um, uh, obviously, it, it has a lot more scope than that. But the, the uh, you know, I started, I, met, I make the point that supply chains have been around since the Bronze Age. That's not new. But what is new is the science of supply chain management. That's new because we needed the computing power to turn it into a science and mathematical algorithms and so forth. So I talked to a guy um, who probably more than any individual on the planet is responsible for the global supply chain. No one did it single-handedly, but this guy, both for his own company, which is a model of seamless global integration, as well as the fact that it's a tech company that provided the tools to all the other companies in the world. So this guy gets kind of gets the credit. And uh, he said to me, he said, Jim, you have to understand, he said, it took us 30 years to build this, roughly 1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall to 2019, just before the pandemic. Took us 30 years to build it. We blew it up in uh, you know, two or three years. And we can't build it overnight. We can't rebuild it overnight. It's gonna take five, ten years to rebuild this. So, you know, war in Ukraine or not, um, this this is not going to be remedied easily. Now, the question is, and this, Francis, this this is your question, what what replaces it? Is it the end of globalization or is there a new phase of globalization. And I, th- I think it's the latter, but but what I mean by that is China and the U.S. are going to decouple. It, decouple. And that was, hap- again, some of these things were happening anyway. The war made it worse. The pandemic made it worse. But it was happening anyway. Xi Jinping is has now elevated himself through National Party Congresses and other ideological means to the role of the new Mao Zedong. Uh, so, you know, the you know, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao and uh Uh, These other guys, uh, like, who cares? They're footnotes. Deng Xiaoping, you know, he gets a a gold star, but uh, it's really now Mao and Xi Jinping. He's the new Mao. That's the way to understand it. And he had decided to decouple the Chinese economy from the US anyway, before everything we're talking about. Uh, And of course, Trump, when he was president, was kind of thinking along the same lines. Um, now we get to Biden. He's, I mean, he's not all there, but, uh, he's certainly got a globalist crowd around him, but, uh, too bad. It's, it's not working. So we're going to, we're going to blow up the global supply chains. We, we, we already have, um, they'll be rebuilt, but along new lines. So let me give you a very concrete example, because I realize I'm speaking in, in kind of big picture stuff. Um, the the biggest semiconductor manufacturer in the world and the most sophisticated is taiwan semiconductor manufacturing tsm yeah. okay so they and then intel is like a close second they're they're both really good and they're they're down to 5 nanometer uh you know chips uh working on 3 but the best the chinese can do is maybe i don't know 10 or 15 they're they're just not in the same league and same with the russians um they have separately announced they're build, building new fabs, it's a fabrication plant for semiconductors in the United States, a Taiwan, and they're $10 billion each. And they're going to take three to five years to build because you can't, you know, it's not a question of four walls. These things are very sophisticated, very hard to do right. So, Taiwan Semiconductor is putting theirs, I believe, in Texas, and Intel announced that they're putting theirs in Oregon. Okay. Why is the biggest semiconductor company in the world, based in Taiwan, building a plant in Texas? Well, welcome to the new globalization, which is the U.S. is onshoring all this technological capability. We don't, we don't want to be dependent on China or Taiwan, or for that matter, South Korea. We don't want to be dependent on those supply lines. We're going to build it here. If you're Taiwan Semiconductor, you want to do the same thing because are you waiting for the Chinese invasion? Well, maybe, you know, we'll wake up and here it comes. Um, now there's, there's a, a new military doctrine called the broken nest. Um, and it's based on a Chinese proverb, and the proverb is: uh, "If there's a broken neck, if there's a broken nest, how can the eggs not be broken? Words, if you've a faulty nest, the eggs are going to fall and they're going to break too." And as applied to Taiwan. China may or may not invade. I think the odds of that have gone up. I'm not saying it's going to happen, you know, imminently, but but the odds have certainly gone up. That's easy to see. Um, if they do, and, and the big military question is will the US 7th Fleet intervene and we'll be in a shooting war with China and we're sinking their aircraft carriers and they're trying to sink ours, etc.? I don't know the answer to that. But I do know that either we or the Taiwanese will destroy all the semiconductor capacity in Taiwan. We're not going to leave that for the Chinese. This is. Um, this is a scorched shirt. This is what the, the, the Russians did to Napoleon. Hey, welcome to Moscow, but good luck finding some food. If if the Chinese take Taiwan, they're not going to have a semiconductor industry, which makes them, has a deterrent value. It makes you, would make you think twice about doing it. If you're the Chinese, we can leave that for the game theorists. But, but that's why the, the semiconductor industry is coming back to the United States. Now apply that to pharmaceuticals, uh, mining, um, you know, strategic medals, uh, and, and a lot else. Um, and you can see the implications of it. So, so now I hypothesize, but I think there's good evidence for it that there will be a new globalization, but it'll be like a club members only. And the members will be, you know, the five eyes and close allies. And you know, let's, let's include the French. You know, they can, they can join the club. But, uh, but the point being we'll trade among ourselves. What we'll have in common is, democracy you know while it lasts and some rule of law um mm-hmm. and some common culture etc but the chinese are going to have to start their own club uh and um you know maybe in east asia hopefully the japanese will be in our club the russians um remains to be seen but um and the big wild card is india because india is probably like as we're speaking surpassing china in population india will be the if if it isn't already, it'll be the number one most populous country on earth. And to their credit, they've had a functioning democracy since 1947. Now, lots of other problems with socialism and inefficiency and some corruption and all that. But uh, but they're a they're a longstanding democracy with the largest population in the world, immense uh, potential human capital. So where where do they come out? So that's that's to be determined. But we'll probably end up with with a new globalization that will be quite different because it will involve a lot more onshoring, less reliance on trading partners. And to the extent you ha- you do have to re- rely on trading partners, that's always a fact of life. It'll be a kind of members only club and the Chinese will, will go their own way. But that also means things are gonna be more expensive.
1: Jim, I find the picture you're painting the world incredibly bleak because what you have is China and its allies, the West and their allies, And everyone else, I mean, well, they're screwed, aren't they? Because supply lines are going to become more and more difficult to come by. They're going to become more and more unreliable. There's going to be food shortages. Food shortages leads to riots and therefore leads to political instability, which then means that certain countries are going to, well, they're going to be plunged into chaos, which then means migrant crises. This this is huge.
0: I agree with that, uh, and the the case that you're not I, making
1: uh, me feel better, Jim. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, um, that's not what we get Jim on the show for. It's never for uh, so that,
2: is it? Well, yeah.
0: we, hopefully, we offer realism and good forecasting. But um, yeah. I, I'm not. I'm a, I'm a cheerful person personally, but I don't. <laughs> I, I don't let that get in the way of good analysis. Um, mm. To me, the saddest case, and I've spent a lot of time there, going back 40 years, is Africa. Because Africa does have enormous potential. Uh, and for, I always tell people, Africa doesn't exist. You have to travel around Africa to know it doesn't exist. It's like fifty-eight countries, from you know, with a large section that's unpopulated, the Sahara Desert. I've been out in the Sahara Desert. Um, you know, Northern Africa, of course, is uh, is Muslim and Arab, uh, Arab speak Arabic and Berber. Uh, culture and descent, a lot of european influence it 's almost like a an extension of Europe in some ways I mean certainly in antiquity that was true uh, and then South Africa, lots of political problems, but you know, moderate climate, great wine uh, you know, beautiful, beautiful part of the world. Um, you know, a lot of people haven't been there. Just picture it as jungle. Well, there's some jungle. I've been in the jungle, but there's high plateau, just gorgeous areas. East Africa is mostly high plateau. So it's got incredible diversity, um, incredible different cultural strands and threads, huge natural resources. What they don't have is, a, is a good rule of law. They don't have governance. Uh, that's just, and I, I don't know why you think someone would wake up, but, but they don't, um. But they're going to, but to your point, Francis, they're going to have to pick sides. You know, and some of these countries, and I would say Zambia, uh, uh, you know, yeah, Zambia, but also Zimbabwe, uh, some of the others are practically Chinese colonies. I know colonies is a bad word and we don't have them anymore, but economically we do. Uh, and China has gone in, when China does a mining project, it's like they create a lot of local jobs. Some, <laughs> they, they, they send in Chinese by the thousands, you know, by the, by the, by the plane load, um, build company towns, uh, mostly populated with Chinese strip the minerals. They're not, uh, environmentally conscious. I know <clears throat> I'm involved with the, uh, you know, gold mining industry here and there. And, uh, you know, I visited mines and, uh, refineries and, um, uh, mills where they crush the ore and turn into what's called doré. I mean, they have these vast. You, you do use cyanide in, um, in extracting gold and in, in, in get, getting gold out of the ore. But you have to have a, a vat, a, ca- a cache, and you got to account for every drop. And when the cyanide that comes out has to be measured against the cyanide that went in, and they better be the same. Like, you can't be throwing the cyanide into uh, rivers and streams, but they do in China. Uh, they do, and the water's poisoned, and, you know, they've poisoned uh, something like 90% of their freshwater rivers are, are literally poisoned. Um, so, uh that's how they treat Africa now. And I'm sure the leaders, you know, in my day the the leaders used to get 30% off the top, uh, except for Mobutu who took 50%. But, um, but you know, the, to the extent they're still doing that, that, if that doesn't change, then Africa is just kind of a basket case, but they could, they could pick size. They could join this club that I've described, uh, and, and maybe benefit from that. But that's, that's, it's going to be a little bit more like, uh, Oh, the fifties and sixties—you know—the expect you don't hear it much anymore. But the third world—you know—it was U.S. and Western Europe, and you know Australia and a few other places were the first world, and the communists were the second world. Everybody else was in the third world. It was synonymous with underdevelopment, corruption, and 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 worse. Um, but we may get back to that, where it's you know the U.S. and you know the Five Eyes and the the, the club that I've described on the one hand, China, and it's. Um, uh, you know, tag alongs on the other, and then everyone else is going to be third world, or you're going to have to pick sides.
2: Uh, Jim, and uh, it's an in- you make an interesting point because the day that the uh, the Russia invaded, I said this was going to be a mon- it was going to have a huge impact on the world, and I think we're we're seeing that happen. And that you know, I think it was it felt to me like it was going to be the start of another cold war, and I think what you're describing is essentially that in in many ways. The, the one thing that strikes me is kind of obvious out of what you're saying, when I was studying economics at university, the thing that everyone talked about was, well, no two countries with McDonald's have ever gone to war. And this was like a shorthand for countries that trade, generally speaking, don't go to war with each other. We've seen that challenge somewhat recently. But broadly speaking, my concern with what you're talking about would be that we're creating these two blocks. And when you've got these two blocks, what happens between blocks right? What do they do? Well, they're competing for resources. They're competing for land. You know, my uh, father-in-law, Soviet father-in-law, spent a lot of time in Angola and other African countries because that's what the plays were at the time. You try and control parts of the world where you're not physically present, but you try and get them to have the right ideology or to support you militarily or with resources. Is that what's going to happen now? There's going to be these two blocks fighting over land all over the world physically, kinetically, but also economically and, and culturally?
0: Something like that. First thing, uh, Constantine, you have, you have to bear in mind, the guy who said that no two countries with McDonald's will ever go to war with each other was Tom Friedman, who hasn't been right about anything for 40 years. So I wouldn't put too much, <laughs> put too much weight on that. Um, he wrote a good, really good book in the 80s, but not, not much since. Um, uh, so, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put too much. Story. Two blocks, maybe, maybe three blocks, uh, maybe... Four, with some members, you know, kind of switching sides, uh, a little bit more dynamic. But yeah, something like that, because... But I guess,
2: Jim, sorry to interrupt. My point was, as much as we abhor gl- elements of what globalization has done to our countries and to what it's done to our independence and the ability to choose our own energy policy or whatever, was it something that gave us peace, which we're no longer going to have? That's what I'm asking you. <sighs>
0: um, It... it- contributed to peace yeah i think you have to say that but and we don't have it right now given what's going on in ukraine but um uh i I have actually looked at some studies on this it i think the end of history thesis and francis Fukuyama, he he taught at my old school um the uh i think that was wrong i think there was i went and i wanted to say premature i think we did have a long period uh from the fall of the berlin wall till fairly recently where there were not any major wars involving major powers, um, at least not to the close proximity that we have today. But instead of saying, well, that was the new normal, I hate that expression, but okay, that was the new normal. And now we're, things are falling apart again. That may have been the anomaly. Uh, and that things are actually, it's back to business as usual, which is war, including war in Europe. So I'm not, I'm not sure that we left that behind, uh, as as much as some scholars, some analysts believe. Um, but we may be heading in. You know we but you know, even in the in the eighties, um, certainly the seventies. I mean, there were proxy wars all over the world: Vietnam, Angola, uh, and elsewhere. <clears throat> the U.S. and Russia never fired a shot at each other. I hope that continues to be the case. I am deeply concerned about kind of the warmonger element in the United States. Um, You know, I studied um, uh, nuclear war fighting in the late, beginning in the late sixties. And the scholars that I was reading in the late sixties, as a college student, had done a lot of the work in the fifties. And it was Henry Kissinger. He's still around, by the way, good for him. (laughs) Uh, uh, Henry Kissinger, Herman Kahn. Herman Kahn wrote a book, it's like a 700 page book called On Thermonuclear War. I don't think it's a bestseller today, but in the fifties, you just, you read, if you were in that field, you read Herman Kahn. Uh, a lot of it was, you know, kind of game theoretic. Well, um, it's not you know, the nuclear weapons never went away, but we did get some treaties and we got some inspections and we got some changes and, um, and people stopped thinking about it. And I think, uh, uh, you know, millennials and, uh, generation Z, uh, I'm not sure they really know what a nuclear weapon is or how they work. Um, But we're we're back. It's back. Now, Putin uh, has said, not casually, but I'm sure it was calculated, but, uh, you know, we may have to use tactical nuclear weapons, or at least we don't rule it out. That's what he said. We don't rule it out. And that's just a restatement of what's called the no first use doctrine. Neither Russia nor the United States have ever adopted the doctrine of no first use. Others, we've reserved the right to use them first if we think that's called for. Now, going back to, to her, I'll use Herman Kahn in particular, but Kissinger and other scholars, Wolfstetter, they all said the same thing. They, they had differences, different ways of analyzing the problem, but they all said the same thing don't go there. Don't go there. What I mean by that is nobody wakes up and says, Ah, oh, nice day. I think I'll start a nuclear war. <laughs> 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 Let's see how that works out. You know, nobody does that. Nobody. But what you, but the way you get to a nuclear war is escalation. So you know, you raise the ante, and I invade, and I, I give the, the some more troops, and you know, I use missiles and so forth, and then you get to a point, it was somewhere down the road where one side's, one side feels it's existential. They didn't start out that way. But through escalation, they arrive at a point where they're like, you know what? Now I've got to use. I got to stop this. I got to use some tactical nuclear weapons. And here's where you get really deep into the game theoretic side of it, because the side that's one side's thinking about using tactical nuclear weapons, and Putin already says we don't rule it out. The other side says, "Huh? If you're going to do that, I better shoot first. I better Mm. use my nuclear weapons first, because now you get into whole you know." First strike, second strike, counterforce, countervalue. I mean, you can go on and on with this theory. We don't need to belabor it. But but the point is you actually get to a point where the side that was uh, least likely to do it becomes the one that shoots first because they think the other guy's going to shoot. Um, and, and, it, and the dynamic takes over. That's really the point. So what yeah. the, the scholar said is don't go down that road. And the closest we ever got until today was the Cuban Missile Crisis. And, you know, I'll, you can fault Kennedy and Khrushchev um khrushchev was ukrainian by the way just for a historical footnote but um you can fault kennedy and khrushchev for for getting there but then you have to give them some credit for finding a way out and but that was a lesson to the world um i I remember it was in you know i was 12 years old or whatever um but the the you know the front page of the new york times showed a um they didn't have pictures (laughs) black and white map kind of thing i used had picture but not color but um it was it was North America with Cuba and then concentric circles showing the range of known missiles. And everyone was re- saying, oh, is, is my locality in one of those circles? Because that means I could get bombed. Um, my wife asked me the other day, she said, do you think that this could turn into Oh, you know, what she said is if it turns into a nuclear war, do you think they'll strike us? Uh, you know, very practical question. And uh, but I, can, I can point out the window here, Your viewers can't see it, but there are three nuclear submarines, nuclear attack submarines, uh, a couple hundred yards away because I, I live in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, which is one of four bases in the world authorized to do maintenance work and refueling on the U.S. nuclear submarine fleet. So there are three nuclear uh, submarines across the, across the river. Well, it's been nice <laughs> knowing you, Jim. Uh, <laughs> we're, on, we're on the list. Um, yeah, I do take it seriously. and I, But I, yeah. do, I, I don't think it's an overstatement to say we're closer to that kind of outcome than we have been since the Cuban Missile Crisis.
1: I mean, that is a deeply sobering way to look at the world. Hey, Francis, do
2: you like podcasts and politics? No, mate, I'm a real man. I'm only interested in
1: football, birds and fast cars.
2: Last time you tried to drive a car you had a panic attack when you got overtaken by a granny. She was driving very aggressively and used disgusting language for a woman of her age. Well, for those of you who do like podcasts and politics, then you have to check out The Lost Debate. It's a podcast and YouTube show for political eclectics who want to escape their media bubbles and engage in good faith with ideas from across the
1: political spectrum. It's three friends from across the political spectrum discussing the big issues of the day. Ravi's a former Obama staffer and school principal, Corey's a former Fox Radio News host, and Ricky's a New York Post columnist.
2: Instead of being at each other's throats, they focus on bringing new perspectives to the table in constructive debates that sound less like crossfire and more like discussions between real people.
1: They sound like us, apart from the whole sound like real people bit.
2: That, and they might actually know what they're talking about.
1: Check The Lost Debate out on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking at, uh, at the picture that, that, you, that you've painted. It's a very bleak picture, but it's one that I agree with and we're already seeing the effects from. Are there any solutions or any things that we can do in order to try and rail back, in order to maybe try and, how can I put it, heal the wounds that have been done, rebuild bridges, etc.
0: There are, uh, and uh, one of the the scholars who articulated this best is uh, Edward uh, Um I don't know if the name rings a bell, but he was uh, he was a classmate of mine, but he is uh, a little older. But uh, his he's brilliant, absolutely brilliant, and has written some excellent books and, and articles and his whole career he was waiting to be the new kissinger except kissinger's still alive so it's been a long way it's kind of like prince charles but uh, he <laughs> uh, but but L- is a big brain and he advanced a concept in the 1990s uh, called geoeconomics now the, the geopolitics yeah big field been around forever economics you know at least since uh, adam smith uh, but probably longer but he, and and they've always been related you know the the napoleon's invasion of Russia and Spain was because they didn't join the continental system to defeat the Royal Navy blockade. So so the two have always been intermingled. People forget that, by the way, that uh, six months, or really five months before Pearl Harbor, FDR put economic sanctions on Japan. He froze their bank accounts and uh, cut off their oil supply. Sound familiar? Um, so this so this is not brand new stuff. But what Ludvig did, he, he said, you know, it's not even – that they're kind of related anymore they' they're merged they're the same and actually wars in the future will be fought economically more so than kinetically and I by the way I I teach a seminar on exactly this topic um, at the US Army War College uh, down in Carlisle Pennsylvania but the the seminar is not limited to uh, mem- pe- people in the army uh, it's because um, everything's cross uh, everything's joint these days in the US military so my class would be, Army, Navy, Marines, Airmen, um, intelligence officials, and, and others. And, but it's an elite group. It's called the Advanced Strategic Arts Program. But these are kind of mid-career, you know, major, lieutenant colonel, colonel, um, and then senior intelligence officials who are kind of in their, you know, right around forty, late thirties, forty, who who have been singled out as, as the big brains of the of the future, the people who will be running the show in ten or fifteen years. And I teach economic affairs to the group. Uh, and I had my um, uh, lecture coming up and I said to the uh, the colonel who's organizing this, I said, well, we've been talking about economic war for seven years. Now we got a war, uh, a real one. Um, but this economic war is unlike anything that's ever been done before. Again, the, the continental system, uh, other, uh, you know, FDR, sang, other examples, lend, lease, et cetera, uh, in, in two ways. Number one, like the war on the ground is tragic. We, you know, we 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 all understand that it's it's a little callous to say, well, that's what wars are, which they are, but it's tragic. Um, but the economic war, uh, if you don't, aside from the human cost, maybe including the human cost, is bigger. Uh, you know, the starvation in Sudan uh, might not make the TV as much as atrocities in Ukraine, but it's going to happen and probably more lives will be lost that way uh the economic impact is orders of magnitude greater but here's here's the point it won't be over soon i don't i don't think the shooting war is going to be over soon uh, uh, either i think i think this will likely go on i can see it going on until may or june beyond that it's hard to have a forecast because there are so many uncertainties but um but the economic war is going to go on for years decades maybe it just morphs into this new world new version of the supply chain that we talked about earlier but the united states said again none of this is spec. you know forecasting is is difficult but none of what we're talking about is really speculation you just have to look at the record the united states said our sanctions on russia will remain until all the russian troops are out of ukraine that's what we said well russian troops aren't leaving ukraine whether they get Kiev, whether they take the West, whether they stay in the East, whether they just are, you know, take Donbass and um, uh, they've already got Crimea, you know, if the U.S. considers Crimea part of Ukraine while the Russians aren't leaving Crimea for you know, several centuries probably. um, Odessa is the big wild card. You know, you can see the the beginning of a Russian air combined air amphibious assault on Odessa. Um, The Russian uh, amphibious assault vessels. They kind of look like aircraft carriers, but they're smaller, but they're designed to put, you know, 5,000 Marines and helicopters and attack aircraft ashore on very short notice that left the Far East a few weeks ago, and I calculated the the sailing time um, to get to the Black Sea uh, and came out around mid-April, mid to late April. Now, there's a big question, will Turkey let them through the Bosporus? I don't know right. the answer to that, but that's going to put Turkey on the spot. But my point is, this is going to go on, but So Russia's not leaving Ukraine. Um, Even if there's a treaty or an armistice uh, of some sort, uh, Russia's going to keep its gains. Ukraine will go on uh, with what's left. But if the U.S. uh, is to be taken uh, literally, uh, legally, sanctions are not ending. So you could have, now I'm hypothesizing, you could have an armistice in June with sanctions going on for three or four years. Were longer, so unless the U.S. modifies its position as part of some kind of uh, peace treaty, so, so I don't know. I mean, this, this, that. My point is, the impact of the economic war will be larger, longer-lasting, quantitatively higher, and maybe even higher from a human, from a humanitarian perspective than the shooting war.
2: Jim, Jim, that makes a lot of sense. And one of the things, obviously, without any. Uh, attempt to minimize any of the horrible things that we've been talking about, whether it's the war on the ground or the economic uh, situation, which I think you're right. And no matter how strongly I feel about what's happening in Ukraine, the truth is the impact of the economic war will be even greater in terms of people's lives lost or damaged by all of this. Right. So without disregarding any of that, is there not also some... Positive trade offs of this reordering of the global situation in the sense that, um, you know, you've talked for a long time about the dangers of doing business with countries like China uh, and the way that they do business with the West. And we on our show have talked a lot, not so much with you, but with others, about a sort of cultural self loathing that seems to have emerged in the West where we're so internally focused that we. Uh, maybe you lack something to push back against. And so we're we're focusing inward instead. Do you think that as a result of this, um, much like in the Cold War, where, yes, the, there would have been economic costs to this standoff between these two superpowers, but uh, it gave uh, the West a focus and something to win, and it also meant that we were more united and we, we had a better sense of who we are, uh, and we also weren't doing business with countries where they were taking advantage of us like China?
0: Right. Um, by the way, I'll, I'll answer that, Constantine. Let me just uh, uh, step back for one second because I don't think I quite answered the last question: Is there any way out of this? I yeah, I think I'd give it extended analysis of the problems. There is, uh, and it's kind of sad because uh, all Ukraine has to do is say two things: we won't join the, we won't join NATO, and we'll remain neutral. That's it. Yeah, a few uh, tweaks around that, maybe expand expanded version of that, uh, and we have models for that. You know, during the Cold War, Finland was neutral. Uh, Austria, Austria was neutral. Um, you know, until kind of uh, very late in the Cold War. So there, there are models for that. And it's a classic role of a buffer state. And it's exactly what Ukraine should be if you're going to be stuck between superpowers of the West and the superpower of Russia. Neutral is a good, a good thing to be. Um, all Zelensky had to do was say that. Uh, and get, you know, sign and buy-in from the United States. And Putin said, okay, that's all I want. You could have avoided this war. I've never seen a war that was easier to avoid. Now, the same thing is true. I've never seen a war that was easier to end, which is stand up and say, hey, we're not going to join NATO. We're not going to, uh, we're going to be neutral. Maybe we won't join the EU, but um, that's that. And make that enforceable in some way. So, and I think that's how it's going to turn out. Which means that this is a an enormous tragedy in the sense that the war the war is uh, the the war is going to end up exactly where it started, except you could have skipped the war. In other words, if they had if, if Ukraine had been willing to make the commitments that it's going to have to make at the end of the day, uh, it's going to end up in the same place, except for the human tragedy, the infrastructure destruction, death, you know, et cetera, across the board. So there's never been a, a less necessary war because you're going to end up where you started, except a lot of people got killed, which is, which is sad. But what it means is that there is a way out, but it's it's the way I just described. Um, short of that, it's just going to be like World War One. And I've read you know thousand-page books on World War One. I, I can rarely finish one because I get like five or six hundred pages into it. And I'm like, this makes no sense. It's just death, just death. Uh, but what was the reason? Uh, what Came out of it, what good was accomplished, and I can't answer any of those questions. Um, so, uh, but but getting back to um, uh, to your your point, Constantine, uh, it, it's know yeah, we're gonna we're gonna re, we're gonna remake the world. We are remaking the world, uh, and uh, it, it's it's uh, it'll be less efficient but more robust. Um, And that's, that's always a trade-off. And and resilient is another word. Um, That's always a trade-off. If you want robustness and resilience, there's a price associated with it. If you, um, you know, we all have insurance, homeowners insurance, you know, against fire and flood and all that stuff, but, and we hope we never have a claim. And when we write the check or make the payment for the insurance premium, we don't think we're throwing our money away. We don't say, gee, I really wish we'd have a fire because I could put a claim in. We hope we never have a tragedy. We hope we never have a claim. And we don't think spending the money is a waste. Same thing with the, with the new global system. It'll be more costly, less efficient in an abstract sense, but more robust, more resilient and better serve our purposes. China. Um, I'm shocked. Uh, I mean, I know what's going on in China. I've been there many times and, and not just in, you know, Beijing or Shanghai. I've been out in the country. I've been all over the place. Um, genocide, uh, concentration camps, uh, thought re-education camps, uh, organ harvesting from live dissidents without anesthetic. Uh, 30 million girls drowned at birth because they were girls. Um, atheist communists. That's China. Is that your business partner? Uh, you know, Walt Disney, uh, Nike, uh, uh, and a long list of others. I, I, they're the, maybe two most prominent names, but there's a long list. And I think the answer is no, that can't be your business partner. Um, I remember during the Cold War when I, Pepsi-Cola was the first kind of major Western business to open something in in Russia or Soviet Union. They had a bottling plant and you could get a Pepsi in Moscow. That was a big deal. That was like headline news all over the world. It's like, oh, gee, a bottle of soda, that's it? That was about it. Other than uh, we bought, you know, you bought natural resources and uh, we didn't sell them much and there weren't many U.S. businesses there. Well, I think we'll end up with something like that in China. And then that'll put China on the spot. Can China develop internal demand, an internal consumption ethic, uh, a financial system, a rule of law, et cetera, to displace Western capital and I think the answer is no they'll fail so I would look for I would look for catastrophes coming out of China but you know that maybe that's the topic for next year or two years no. <laughs>
1: Jim we've been talking at the macro level and it's obviously been fascinating but I, I think it's very important that we talk about the micro level the individual particularly now there is some there's lots of people from all different parts of society who are listening to this and thinking oh Right. What can I do? What can I do as an individual to better protect myself from these financial and economic shockwaves? What are they, Jim?
0: Uh, a couple of things. Number one, I would um, I would increase my allocation to cash um, for a couple. Really? Of uh, yeah. I did uh, not
2: expect <laughs> you to say that, Jim. Well, I, I had my money on gold, quite literally. <laughs> well,
0: uh, well, let me. OK, I'll stick with cash, but let me kind of put that in a context. Um, The most powerful investment tool we have is diversification. Now, that sounds like an obvious statement. Oh, yeah, everybody knows that. They teach you in the first week of risk management. Diversification is the way to go. Well, it is the way to go. The problem is people don't understand what diversification means. So I run into people all the time. They say, well, I'm completely diversified. I own 50 different stocks in 10 different sectors, you know, semiconductors, consumer non-durables, you know, uh, uh, minerals, et cetera. Um, and I say you're not diversified. You may own fifty stocks in ten sectors, but you have one asset class, stocks, which are subject to conditional correlation. They, in calm markets, yeah, they they're idiosyncratic, but in panics they all go down together, or in bubbles they all go up together. So they're so you're not diversified. So what is diversification? Diversification is having slices of asset classes that are that are minimally correlated, Isn't probably not zero, but as close to zero as you can get. So what would that be? You'd have a slice of gold, but I recommend 10%. People, I have some strong views on gold and I've written a lot about it, but people are surprised to hear me say 10%. Like oh, Jim, why isn't it 50% or 100% if you believe all this? Well, I do believe it, I wouldn't say it if I didn't, but you don't want to be 100% in anything. You don't want to be 50% in anything. 10% is fine, if I'm wrong, you won't get hurt. And if I'm right, you're going to make so much money that it'll actually kind of be the insurance on the rest of your portfolio, but that leaves 90%. So I would have a large slug in cash, maybe 30%. And people say, well, wait a second. Banks pay me 25 basis points. You know, stock market's going up. Why would I want to be in cash? That's horrible. A couple of things. Number one, the stock market might not always go up. Uh, but number <laughs> two, uh, cash is the opposite of leverage. So leverage Increases the volatility of the rest of the portfolio. You'll get much bigger returns, but mm-hmm. you'll have much bigger losses. If you have a slice of cash and you've, say, you've got uh, a volatile asset over here, which are stocks, another volatile asset over here, gold is fairly volatile for reasons we can, you know, we don't have to get into right now. Um, if you got that volatility and you have cash, it will reduce the overall volatility so you can sleep better at night. Cash is a great asset in deflation. We've spent a lot of this, this, uh, Interview talking about inflation, which is here, and you got to you got to deal with that. But uh, don't rule out deflation if we go into a recession because the Fed over tightens. Or, you know, the thing about the the inflation, just a quick aside, there it comes in two flavors. There's cost push and demand pull. Demand pull is when individuals. Um, are worried about inflation, and they start accelerating purchases. Like, hey, better go buy that washing machine right now because the price is going up, or better go buy that house right now because the price is going up. That's demand pull. Cost push uh, Cost uh, push comes from the supply side, not the demand side. And that's what we're seeing uh, mm-hmm. because of what we talked about, supply chain, energy cost. The Fed can't drill for oil. You know, Raising interest rates doesn't get you more oil or natural gas. So the Fed can't do anything about it except kill the economy. Yeah, and that'll cool it off. But when you pay, uh, you know, I I put gas in my car. I don't just read about this stuff. You know, it used to be $45. Now it's about $75. Well, when that's, multiply that by 200 million cars uh, across America, what happens is it reduces your discretionary income. If you're paying another 30 bucks at the pump twice a week, then you're not going to go out to dinner Friday night. You're not going to, you know, Take a, a vacation, whatever it may be, so that depresses all those other areas. So there is this recursive function. So don't rule out deflation down the road, not right away, but you know maybe next year. So cash, but here's the here's the biggest value of cash. It gives you optionality, and people don't understand this. Yeah. Uh, what if I said to you, "Hey, I'll sell you, I'll sell you a call option, and at the mar- at the market call option on every asset class in the world." And you go, "Yeah, that sounds kind of valuable." You know, well, that's what cash is. You, you know, when things are crashing. You're the one who can go shopping, and nobody's better at this than Warren Buffett. He's got his cash level at Berkshire Hathaway is at an all time high, so there's a place for that. You can have some stocks, but I would look at the energy sector. I mean, this, um, you know, I've done a lot of work in in climate change. I mean, climate change is real. Okay, let's start there. Uh, I used to live on a for ten years on a beautiful body of water, Long Island Sound. You can fish and swim and sail and uh, do all kinds of things, create lobsters. Uh, but um, it's the shape it is because it used to be a glacier. Uh, in the last ice age, it was the lowest latitude of glaciation in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, that's why it has a rocky coast. So there's climate change. It was a glacier. Now It's a now you can go sailing. So it's real, but it's slow. And all the stuff about the existential crisis in 10 years, they've had a rolling 10-year uh, doomsday for 40 years. So, uh, that lacks credibility. There is no, um, climate crisis. There is no existential crisis. So you have to discount the climate alarmists. Um, and they want, um, you know, wind turbines and solar and maybe a couple other so-called renewable sources. I actually built, and I own the largest non-commercial solar module field in New England. And I run my house off it. It's, uh, it produces about seven point five um, kilowatt hours. Uh, so I know a little bit about it. And uh, what I know is it doesn't work at night. <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> it doesn't work in snow. It doesn't work in rain. It doesn't work in really cloudy days. By the way, you don't run your house off of solar modules. You run your house off of batteries. Yeah. And mm. the modules charge the batteries. So you watch the battery level. That's how you manage it. Um, don't run the uh, you know the the dishwasher on a on a cloudy day. But uh, so it works fine. But if you think you can run cities with that, forget it. I mean, I, I had to clear three acres uh, to put up my towers. People say, why'd you clear three acres? They don't take up that much room. I said, well, have you ever heard of trees? There's no trees in the desert, but they have them where I live. And uh, you don't want a tree falling on your tower. So it's just not practical uh, at that scale. Um, and even if you thought it was, and it isn't, that's that's very clear. But here comes... Uh, you know, wind turbines and um, solar, and I'm not against it. Like you say, I own one, but, uh, but they're not scalable. They're intermittent and they don't give you the base power uh, baseline power you need to run a modern power grid. Meanwhile, here's global demand. Okay. So the gap, the gap's getting bigger. It's not getting smaller. Renewables, whatever the pros and cons are not closing the gap. The gap's getting bigger. There is no substitute. For oil and natural gas uh, and uranium, you got you to put uranium in the mix. And you know, hydro, if you live in Quebec, that's great, a lot of hydro, but it, not so much in the desert. Um, and I've spoken to, you know, without mentioning names, I would say you can go no higher in terms of who knows. You know, let's just say board members of the, one of the five biggest oil companies in the world um, who who said, yeah, <laughs> as he said, we talk about that. But we, we can't say it publicly because we'll be, you know, uh, dragged, you know. Chained and dragged through the, to, through the streets. But that's just, those are just the facts. So therefore, if you have an oil sector that's been bashed by the climate alarmists and, but you can't do without it, which is true buy some oil companies, you know, when, when they're, you know, so there's your stock portfolio, private equity, venture, real estate, uh, not commercial, but residential. Yes. Um, and, you know, farmland, that's one of the hottest asset categories and, uh, and gold. So. So that's diversification and that's the kind of portfolio you want and kind of season to taste.
1: And no crypto, Jim. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, look, I enjoy um, playing roulette and I have my system. I'm still, I'm still like, so like Marcel Duchamp, I'm still working on it. But uh, <laughs> uh, the thing, reason I prefer roulette to crypto is because the, you get a free drink uh, when you're in the system. <laughs> but, that's, but that's how I think about crypto. I'm not a crypto basher. I, the, when I was a... Uh, you know, teenager, there was a popular song called uh, Shout, Shout, Knock Yourself Out. And it was, you know, nice dance. But um, if you want some crypto, knock yourself out, go get it. I'm not bashing it. I'm not against, I don't know I don't own any. I don't plan to. I don't recommend it. But I'm not like some, I'm not lying down in front of a truck trying to stop the crypto. move. It's here. I've actually studied it more than all but a few people. And I've arrived at ways of understanding it that are probably nobody in the world really gets, although I've started to write and talk about it. So I think I have a, a very good handle on it technologically, mathematically, and um, really in terms of communications theory. But, uh, but it's not, well, let me, let me put this way. I'll say crypto is not money. But what crypto is doing is erasing the definition of money. So maybe the dollar is not money either. And that's really the point. It's not the, it's not the case that Bitcoin is going to replace dollars as a global reserve currency. That's not going to happen, but Bitcoin might contribute to a concept of moneyness, not money, but moneyness, which is, it's kind of like money, but maybe the dollar is getting there also. And we're losing the threat. We don't know. My thesis would be, we don't know what money is anymore, but we don't know that we don't know. It's like, uh, uh, you know, some metaphors are better than others, but, uh, you know, the, the saying we, we don't know who discovered water, but we're sure it was not a fish um, because, <laughs> because the fish is in the water. You got to take the fish out of the water and it's like, hey, where's the water? But when you're immersed in something, you actually don't know what it is. Um, and we're immersed in electronic um, orb, if you will. And uh, it's erased a lot of concepts, concepts, but we don't know it. And so I think we're seeing the end of money.
2: Very interesting, Jim. Well, I'm sure we'll get an opportunity to talk to you about that next time because I think it deserves a little bit more (laughs) than than a couple of minutes. Uh, But as always, thank you so much for coming back on the show. We're going to do a couple of very special questions from our audience for you, from our local supporters. Before we do that, we as always have our last question, which is what is the one thing we're not talking about as a society that you think we should be?
0: Probably uh, debt. Um and again, it kind of goes back to you know we're losing the concept of money well are we losing the concept of debt and I've studied you know I've done read and researched and done my own work on the history of debt, and of course we're um we're seeing the rise of modern monetary theory, and you know you go around the u s Congress, I dare say you you know out of five hundred thirty five members you can't find more than five or six who could tell you what modern monetary theory is, but that doesn't matter because they've all adopted it. Our fiscal policy in the United States is modern monetary theory, whether they, whether the members know it or not. Um, and the theory is, uh, part of the theory is that uh, you, the debt can be as high as you want. Debt to GDP ratios don't matter. Uh, as long as the debt's in a currency that you print, what's the big deal? You can always just print it and pay the debt. Um, there are unmet needs in society. And to the extent that they require money just print the money and and the leading advocate you know stephanie kelton is a professor at uh state university of new york um said um we don't even need a bond market and and this, again this is from her book so i'm not I'm not putting words in her mouth these are her words she said the the, the u.s treasury market exi- only exists as a favor to investors we're giving you a place to put your money if you want to but we don't actually need it we could actually just give wire instructions from, you know, Lockheed and Boeing and, and Medicare to the Fed. And they could just send the money right to Lockheed to pay for stuff. Why don't we have to issue bonds and take the money and, you know, get the Fed to buy the bonds and then use the money to pay military contractors, just send them the money. What's the big deal? Uh, so that, that is what's going on. Um. But there was a reason we used to care about debt because it was sort of uh, there's there's something behind it that is being taken for granted, which is creditworthiness. Yeah, we don't have to pay off the national debt. We don't, but we have to roll it over. That's the thing. And is is your continued access to the market? If you take that for granted, you're probably eroding your credit standing. Um, and uh, uh, and there's a, there was a reason we used to lower the debt. This goes back to David David Hume. Uh, among others, and it was it was in case you had to issue debt to fight a war. You yeah. know, you, you, you look and the history of U.S. debt is, is it's, it's not a straight line from zero to uh, thirty trillion. It it goes like this: it goes up and down. You know just for inflation; as even more uh, more extreme. But the point being, you would pay down your debt in times of peace so that you could borrow money in times of war. It was that simple. Uh, and the only exception that was the great depression and you can kind of think of the great depression as an economic war, but that was abandoned, um, around 2000, but really starting with Obama and Trump, uh, and now we've lost the concept. So the U S is ill prepared for a day when credit may be an issue and we may actually need to borrow the money.
2: There we go. Jim, we're going to ask you a couple of questions, as I said, for our locals. But thank you so much for coming back on. I look forward to reading Sold Out. Uh, and uh, where can people find you online? What's the best way for people to follow your work?
0: Um, well, I have a newsletter, Strategic Intelligence, um, and it's uh, it's the best value out there. We we have some more high-priced products, but uh, for uh, for $49 a year, you get uh, 5,000 words a month. I put my heart and soul into it. So that's a good Uh, And also very active on Twitter, at James G. Rickards, R-I-C-K-A-R-D-S, one word, at James G. Rickards. Jim,
1: it's been an absolute pleasure as always. Thank you so much. And if you've enjoyed this episode, they always go out Wednesdays and Sundays, 7 p.m. UK times. Our Raw shows are always Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And for those of you who like your trigonometry on the go... We're also available as a podcast. Thanks for watching. If you
2: want to hear Jim's answers to our last two questions from our audience, make sure to join Locals. Take care.
0: We'll see you soon. I always say if you want to slaughter cattle, you have to herd them into a chute and get them into the slaughterhouse. And digital money um, is is the cattle chute, so we can all be slaughtered in digital form.